0: please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 8, Luke chapter 8. Renee, that was very brave and a great blessing, thank you, thank you. God is gracious, and even when our technology fails us, the spirit, the joy, the love of the Lord, evident in Renee, Um, what a blessing, thank you. Luke chapter 8. This morning, as we continue our study of Luke, we've been in it for nearly a year, and we have, I'm certain, well over a year to go. We come to a new section, a new development in Luke's gospel. Today's passage, just three short verses, is a um, study of contrasts. On the one hand, we have Jesus' disciples, terrified and afraid Jesus asleep in a boat at peace. And this this encounter will end with both Jesus and his disciples raising a question. Jesus, a question of correction, of mild rebuke. Where is your faith? The question of the disciples, however, is one of fear and awe. Who then is this? And so we're to look at this morning's the sleeping sovereign Savior, the sleeping Sovereign Savior, let's just begin by reading Luke chapter 8, verses 22 to 25. One day he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they were sailing, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filled filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebukes the wind and the raging waves and they ceased and there was calm. He said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid and they marveled saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and water? And they obey him. In Luke's gospel, as we've been studying, Luke divides his narrative into sections. He, he told us at the very beginning as he was writing to Theophilus that his intention was to put together a well-ordered account. So Luke does not always put things in chronological order, but he puts them in an in intentional order, and we get signs of division. And if you remember three weeks ago when we began chapter 8, We saw that we were in a second section of of Jesus' Galilean ministry. Chapter 8 begins with a sort of paradigmatic summary statement. Look at verse 1. Soon afterward, he went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. Very similar, in fact, to the way he introduces Jesus' ministry in chapter 4. In verse 14, he returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, And a report about him went through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues. And what we noticed was that this new introduction, because he's in the same location, he's doing fundamentally the same thing. He's preaching. He's got his disciples with him. but, But Luke restarts here, makes this next development, because here we get the introduction of the parables. And here Jesus introduces the second Isaiah strand that he stands in. And in the first one in chapter four, he goes to his synagogue in his hometown and he reads the scroll of Isaiah 61 that says the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me or that's the word for Messiah there. Or Christ to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus says, that's me. Today in your hearing, this is fulfilled. I am that one. I am the one with the message for the poor. I am the one to give the sight to the blind, and I am the one to set captives free. That word for good news is where we get gospel from. In chapter 8 and verse 10, Jesus cites another passage in isaiah and he says that is also what he's up to and and so this next section of jesus Galilean ministry introduces this secondary theme of jesus ministry and that is answering the questions why parables i have mean, i've heard it said often that he spoke in parables to, to get the teaching down so that the everyday common folk could understand he spoke in parables to to make it easier for people to track with him but look what he says in verse nine when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. And he's quoting here Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10, where Isaiah, after seeing an exalted vision, the living God is commissioned with a message that God says will not cause Israel's salvation, but they're hardening. And Jesus, who's well aware that the overwhelming majority of Israel will be crying out for his blood, will be handing him over to Caesar, will be crying out, we have no king but Caesar, away, crucify this man. Jesus indicates that his, his ministry is not simply one of calling the poor, the lost, the blind to salvation, but also hardening those who persist in unbelief. There's a judgment in his ministry as well. Both of those are operative. And then we looked at the parable of the sower and the call of response to respond to his light rightly, not to cover it, but to let it shine. Well now, if you look at verse 22, we shift to another time segment, one day. And from here, we're gonna get an uninterrupted flow. In fact, there's an arc that Luke is introducing. The other theme is this. We're gonna take a pause from parables for a bit and we're gonna look at historic events. Things happening rather than focusing primarily on Jesus' teaching, we're looking at what He does. So here He calms a storm. Then, starting in verse 26, then He sailed to the Gerasenes and He heals the demon-possessed man. Then, as He's returning, the, the woman comes up and touches the hem of His garment. The flow of blood is ceased. Then He raises Jairus' daughter. Then He sends out the twelve. Then He feeds the five thousand. All leading up to, in chapter 9, verse um, 18, Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say, Elijah. And others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. And then he said to them, But who do you say I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. That's where we're headed. What Luke has done is he's laid out a series of events to show Jesus' absolute sovereignty, his absolute power, his absolute control over every area of life. We're gonna see his power over nature this morning, his power over the supernatural word next week, his power over disease the week after that, his power over death as he raises Jairus' daughter. Then we're gonna see in chapter nine as he sends out the 12 that he gave them power. Not only does Jesus have all power and authority, he can grant power and authority. And then we see that Jesus is the life giver. He's the sustainer as he creates the food. And all that leads up to Peter's confession. So we're beginning this next sort of arc in Luke, studying the the sovereignty, the power, the glory of the Christ. And look at it in two points, really. The blanks here, we're gonna look at one storm calmed, And two questions raised. One storm calmed, two questions raised. One storm calmed. It takes three verses, verses 22 to 24. One day, he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, Let us go across the other side of the lake. And so they set out. So I want to look at the setting and then the event, then their plea for help, and then the miracle that he does. So Luke gives us the setting. This is one day. We don't know when this is. Technically, it could have happened before some of the other events. Luke doesn't give us that information. That's not critical or important for us to know. One day, he did this. Now, starting here, we do get a flow because the next event happens when he gets to the other side of the lake. The next event happens when he gets back from that trip. But starting this chain one day, and we're at the Sea of Galilee, or as Luke calls it, Gennesaret. This is is the center of Jesus' ministry up to that point. And Jesus, one day, we don't even know why, we're not told, one day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across the other side of the lake. Now the word for boat here, same word used back in chapter 5 with Peter's fishing boat. So remember, these are good-sized vessels. Peter's fishing boat had enough room for Peter, a number of other men, to be standing with nets and still room yet for Peter to fall down on his face at Jesus' feet. This is a decent-sized fishing boat. I mean, nothing ginormous, but bigger than a rowboat. And maybe you've seen photos, or not photos, drawings or paintings. There wouldn't be photographs, would there, Anna? No, no there wouldn't be. Um, this is a decent-sized boat. And, and we know that m- many of his disciples are very skilled fishermen, seamen. They're skilled with this. They get in the boat. Let's go to the other side. That's the setting. We're in the Sea of Galley, We're on a decent-sized fishing boat or something like a fishing boat. Sizeable. And then an event happens. Verse 23. And, and Luke gives us really two events. Two things happen sort of simultaneously. As they were sailing, he fell asleep. So here's Jesus. He's in the boat. He's sitting in the back, probably on a cushion. He falls asleep. And in contrast to the peace and the sleep of the Messiah... A windstorm came down the lake. Now, that word for windstorm in other places could be translated a tornado or a hurricane. This is a very violent and strong storm, not a small storm, a very violent and strong storm. A windstorm arose. So, so that's the event. The disciples are in the boat. They're crossing the sea. Jesus is asleep. The picture of peace, notice the contrast. Here's a picture of peace. Jesus asleep. And here's the picture of uncertainty and calamity, a a hurricane, a tornado, something of that scope reminds us of, of um, of Jonah, right? There's one other thing I can think of where a giant storm raises and there's a man asleep in a boat. Jonah, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was to the ship into the sea. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was asleep. I just want to pause for one second. A lot of times people will say, I have peace about this. I know it's the right thing to do. Keep in mind, there are two men asleep in different boats, each at peace. Jesus, truly at peace. Jonah, guilty conscience, is still asleep in the middle of a storm. Just because you have peace doesn't prove you're right. If, if you have made a biblical decision, you, I would expect there to be peace. But Jonah had peace too. Jonah had peace too. But the, this this contrast of Jesus asleep and a raging storm, and, and Luke goes on to, to tell us the the consequence of this. The boat begins to take on water, and. The narrator tells us they were in danger. What the disciples are about to say, and as we try to deal with this and why Jesus rebukes them, it's not that they have misapprehended the situation in that sense. The the water's coming in. It's coming in over the gunnel. Boat's taking on water. They are in danger. They are in distress. And here is Jesus asleep. Water in particular um, is is a force used by God in Israel's history and in the world as a source of judgment. Again and again in the Hebrew Scriptures, we see that, that that God created the order of our present world as he separates the waters, creating the dry land. He brings a judgment upon all flesh in a flood that kills all men. He destroys Pharaoh's armies with the Red Sea coming together. And so consequently, it's, it's not infrequent to see in the Old Testament death being described as water. Listen to Second uh, Samuel, the waves of death encompass me, the torrents of destruction assailed me. And here they are out in the Sea of Galilee in a tempest, waves coming in over the water, facing imminent drowning. So they respond much as you and I would respond, they get scared. <laughs> and they cry out to Jesus. And they turned to him and they woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Now, notice they've they've taken it one step further. The narrator tells us they're in danger. They take it, we're dying. We are dying. We are perishing. We are being destroyed and undone. And then look at Jesus' response He's in control, He is the Master. They woke him and he awoke. And rebuked the wind and the raving raging waves. Just stop and think about that. Wind, as we understand it, a natural force, the result of high pressures and low pressures and and movement. We can explain. You can go to the weather channel and they can explain to you what causes wind and how it happens. I mean, Jesus rebukes wind. And not just the wind, the waves. And you'd be tempted to think, well, it's not the waves' fault, they're just doing what the wind tells them to do. Jesus is rebuking natural forces. I mean, get this. This would be like rebuking the the clock for what time it is. This would be like rebuking, you know, the Pythagorean theorem or algebra. This is is the audacity of what Jesus is doing. He is rebuking the wind and the waves. He doesn't ask God to do it. He doesn't pray, oh Lord, help. He just speaks. Rebukes the wind and rebukes the waves. And what do they do? They immediately Obey. This is the same language. Turn back to chapter 4. Same language of how he has done other miracles. In chapter 4, verse 31, he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching there on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And after saying that, introducing it, Luke gives us two examples of Jesus' word. Possessing authority, verse 33. And in the synagogue, there's a man with the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus, same word, rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. Of course, the demon obeys. And then, verse Thirty-eight. He arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a fever. They appealed to him on her behalf, and he stood over her and rebuked the fever. Jesus rebukes demons. He rebukes sickness. He rebukes the wind. And don't miss it, the waves as well. He's showing his sovereign authority over the air and over water. And they obey. This is powerful and authority in the word. It shouldn't surprise us though, does it? This is, this is the one who created all things and how did he create all things? By speaking. We can, we can gloss over that in Genesis 1, can't we? And God said, let there be light. Who's he talking to? He's talking to nothing and the nothing obeys and becomes everything because God's word has power. And the same elements that came into existence at the power of his word, according to Hebrews 1, 3, Continue to exist. Why, why does this world hold together? Why does why does the sun rise day after day? Why do the stars come out night after night? According to Hebrews one three, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Not only was this world created by the speech of Jesus. And I say Jesus because John 1 makes it clear which member of the Trinity was the agent directly involved in creation. John 1, all things came into being through him and apart from him, there's nothing that has come into being. So Jesus speaks creation into existence and Jesus by the power of his word upholds the universe. And when Jesus returns, how will he destroy his enemies? He will fight against them with the sword of his mouth, the word of God. This, this is the one who speaks. And even though the disciples misapprehend, they don't fully understand who Jesus is. That becomes clear from their wondering, who is this? The, the wind recognizes him, and the waves recognize him, and they obey. This miracle is unprecedented in, the, in regards to the Old Testament. Um, the closest I could think of for weather miracles were Elijah praying that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't rain. And then you've got Elisha and you've got Joshua and Moses and the parting of water, right? Beyond that, someone's speaking to a storm and it ceases. These are, are, and here is Jesus exercising divine power. So the points, Jesus' word has absolute authority and Jesus exercises divine power. No, what we see Jesus do here, and I think the disciples get this, are statements the old testament does make but always attributed to god himself listen to this psalm 89 9 you rule the raging of the sea when its waves rise you still them psalm 93 4 My, we, we sing the sons of korah right jim the seas have lifted up their voice Yet mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Or even more clearly in Psalm 107, speaking of how God has delivered his people, some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters, and they saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea, and they mounted up to heaven, they went down in the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. And then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and He brought them to their desired haven. Jesus has just done what no Old Testament prophet ever did but what God repeatedly is described as doing. To have the authority and the power to tell the sea this far and no further, to tell the storm to cease. And he does it just by speaking. He doesn't ask God for help. He just speaks. It's his own authority, his own power at work. And the seas and the winds recognize and obey. They ceased and there was Calm. So now we have our second setting. First, we have the the storm calmed, one storm calmed, but now that's going to raise two different questions one one from Jesus and one from his disciples. Two questions raised. Now, the setting they're in a boat, and suddenly this, this terrible gale and storm ceases. And Jesus said to them, Where is your faith? That's his question. They were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the waters? And they obey him. So let's, let's look at these two questions. Jesus, where in your, your faith the disciples, who then is this? Now, Jesus rebuked them. And there, there's definitely a rebuke here. I think it's a mild, gentle rebuke, but he's correcting them. Now, I want you to think carefully through this. What exactly is their mistake? Now, now two of the other synoptics have this exact same event with slightly different wording, in one, they call him teacher, and another, they call him Lord. And, and some people have tried to make a big deal out of the supposed discrepancies in the Bible. I don't think the disciples picked a representative. Okay, okay, go wake him up and speak. They're, they're all crying out. Some of them are crying, teacher. Some are crying, Lord. Some are calling, Master. There's, there's, no, there's no problem with that. But Luke really doesn't give us a ton of details here. He tells us the, the water's coming in over the railing, they're in danger. They wake Jesus, they call him master, master, and they say, we are perishing. What have have they done wrong? Why this correction? Why this rebuke? Where did they go wrong here? Or what didn't they do that they should have done? Well, there's a couple options, and people have made various suggestions. Some have suggested that because Jesus said, let us go to the other side, well, Jesus is the master, and he said, we'll go to the other side, and we're not at the other side yet, so um, clearly we can't die. I'm not sure I buy that. I, I think there's room for Jesus to say, let us go to the other side, and perhaps Peter gets swept overboard. I don't, I don't know why those would be mutual exclusive con- concepts simply based on what Jesus said. Um, others have suggested that perhaps um, it's the notion of, of, you should be so heavenly minded that death is gain. They shouldn't be, I don't know if that's it either. I, I think it's appropriate to feel fear, and that's the first blank the disciples' fear in and of itself was not wrong. I don't don't believe that. It it, In and of itself is wrong. I I think it's possible to simultaneously be be afraid of something and agitated by something, not looking forward to something, and not necessarily be doing anything wrong. If you don't agree, then you'd have a real hard time with Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating great drops as though it were blood as he begins to think about an approach and in his mind, wrestle with the cross. In agony, the text says, in agony. I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with a certain amount of healthy fear. I think God wired us that way. I remember riding my bike on the bike path about five years ago, and I'm bebopping along, listening to my music, and all of a sudden, I start riding through what I think is still calm water and I realized I'm waist high in a new river that formed over a, a, a road. And I'm about to be swept into the brush. And I was afraid. <laughs> I began to pray. And God was good. And I made it through it. But I, I can still think of that and tremble. I don't think there's anything fundamentally wrong in the disciples' fear in and of itself. In fact, this, the passage I read, David um, describing his own situation in fear in 2 Samuel 22, five through seven. The waves of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of shell entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. So, so what's, what's their problem here? Why, why does Jesus correct them? I mean, after all, they see the danger and then they go to the right source. They go to the master and they wake him up and they say, master, master, we are perishing. What's their problem? I think Luke gives us some hint into what's going on here by what comes next. After Jesus stills the storm and he says to them, where's your faith? What does he tell us? They marveled, saying to one another, who then is this? And by that question, Luke introduces the theme for the next chapter and a half, ultimately culminating in Peter's confession, you are the Christ of God. Luke is telling us what we're about to see is is another lesson on, on the identity of Jesus, that their understanding of who Jesus was was insufficient. It's fully appropriate to marvel at Jesus' power, to be in awe of this demonstration of sovereign control. But clearly something else is going on. He is expanding their understanding of who he is and what he's capable of. You don't ask the question, who then is this? unless he's just done something you you didn't have a category for, you didn't think was possible, you thought was outside of the scope of his ability. And I'm not entirely sure why that is because they've seen him already raise the dead. He raised the widow's son. They've seen him touch a leper and rather than becoming leprous, the leper becomes holy. They've seen this. They've heard the titles. They've heard the titles ascribed to him. Well, I think what happened was, in their in their fear and terror, they do something we can very easily do. They forgot that, and just were afraid. I and mean, what you're looking at is simple, plain fear. Minus, and here's your next blank. In their fear, they should have feared him more. In their fear, they should have feared him more. What I mean is that is this. I think fear over disaster, fear over calamity is appropriate as long as it is subservient to underneath ruled by the fear of the Lord. Luke shows us that coming on the other side of this, what they, they get afraid again, don't they, right? They were afraid. So the, the, the immediate distress ends... But they've learned something about Jesus now that creates within them fear. Presumably, that fear wasn't within them prior to them seeing this expression of power. That, that's my logic. Presumably, the fear, and I would argue it's the fear of the Lord that is made here, created as they behold what he has done, was not present prior to them seeing it. Because this is new information. This raises the question who then is this man? I mean, if the, if the living Christ appeared, if he returned and defeated his enemies, we would be in awe, we would be in wonder, we would, we would tremble. I don't think we'd say, who then is this? He's doing things we understand he can and should and will do. What Jesus has just done stretches their understanding of who he is. And I wrestled with this because they've seen him raise the dead. They've seen him do these things. And I, what I came to is that my experience, and I think your experience as well, can be that you can learn something, you can know something, but it doesn't really take root, it doesn't really take hold. And then trials and circumstances in life reveal that what we think we know, we don't. I mean, didn't that happen to Mary already in this gospel? And Mary when gets told, he will be the son of the most high. And when Jesus is missing in, in Jerusalem, he's in the temple, Mary comes in, your father and I have been looking for you, we're worried, and Jesus has to correct her, doesn't he? I've been about my father's business. He's reminding her who his true father is. Mary knew, but it's been years and years and years, and she's changed his diapers, and she's dressed him, and she's fed him and cared for him. And over time, this truth is slowly given way to, that's my boy, that's our boy. Same thing. I, there are plenty of people I know who in a good season of their life can give orthodox True answers of who God is and what the Bible says. And then when the trial comes, those things fly out the window. The disciples are terrified. It's in addition to the fear of the storm. There needs to be a fear of the Lord. And after all, if this is the Lord, if they believe he is who he says he is, shouldn't they to some degree be getting their cues off of him? After all, Jesus has said in chapter 6, no disciple is greater than his master. Well, master, is he worried about the storm? No. No. He's asleep, which means either the master has done something foolish or the master might know something I don't know. That, that doesn't answer their minds either. It reminds me back in, in Numbers chapter 13, you, you don't need to turn there, but when Moses sent out the 10 spies and they came back and they gave the report of the land. I want you to listen to this. We came to the land which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey. This is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there, and the Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the seas and along the Jordan. And then Moses adds this editorial remark, verse 32, Numbers 13. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land what what was inaccurate about their report did the jebusites not live there the hittites not live there no it's what they didn't say and we get the answer that contrast from caleb and joshua who say no let us go up at once and occupy it for we are able to overcome it we have promises from god there's a living god who's promised this land to us and yes they're big and yes they got big walls and yes the land can be harsh but we got the living god on our side let's go By simply leaving out who God is, by leaving out what also they knew about God, they gave a bad report. The disciples here forget practically some of what they know of who Jesus is, and so they need to be taught again who this one is. The question that gets raised here is the question Luke will spend the next chapter and a half answering. Jesus rebukes, where is your faith? What he's saying is, if you had been paying attention and piecing together what you knew about me, and if you took your cues from my actions, in and along with your fear of this storm, would be a fear of God and a confidence that I know what I'm doing. Okay, that's Jesus question. So then, how, how do we apply that? How do we apply that to ourselves when we're in trial? Because again, we can think we know things and think we understand things, and then the whirlwind comes. Then the cancer comes. Then we lose the job. Then the spouse says, "I want out." just want to give you three quick points to bear in mind. One, remember God is sovereign. We read all those passages. God created the storm. In Jonah, God created the storm. In Psalm 107, God created the storm. God is in control. There is no trial. There is no no calamity that doesn't ultimately find its source from the hand of God. It's not as though God does the nice things and Satan does the bad, evil, nasty things. God is Lord and sovereign of all. Because of that, you can also take confidence that God is with you. Jesus is with them in the boat, and God, Jesus says, I will never leave or forsake you. Psalm 139, David says, where can I go from your presence? If I departed into heaven, behold, you're there. If I went to the depths of the earth, you were there. Your hand encompasses me. You go before me, you come behind me. Not only does the trial come from God, but God is with you in the trial. And third, God is good. God is good. And that does not mean that every trial is going to have a temporally happy ending. The wrong the wrong thing to think here is this the storm comes, and if you just have enough faith, Jesus will calm the storm. No, sometimes the sickness kills, sometimes the marriage ends, sometimes the child dies, sometimes the sickness doesn't go away. But God is good and will see you through that, will walk you through that. He will use it for his purposes. And so, yes, it's fine. It's fine. I'm I'm watching a a neurological disease reduce my mother's ability to function and live. And I fear, in a sense, I have trepidation and anguish over what the next steps of the progression of that disease will do. I don't feel in any way ashamed to say that. I I think of those steps and watching her lose muscle function with dismay. And yet I hope in, with, and through it is a confidence that she is in a sovereign God's hands who loves her, who has metered this out, and who will work good through it and will give the grace to sustain her Now I hope that's the proper balance. So I go to the Lord with my prayers and I love my mother and I don't want to see her suffer. And I say, Lord, Lord, she is perishing. But in with that is, but but you will do what is right. And you love us. And this isn't a mistake. And you're certainly not asleep at the wheel. And there's a great irony here. Psalm 121, another Sons of Korah favorite. He will not let your foot be moved He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. It may look like he's asleep. It may feel like he's asleep. He will not sleep. It may have looked like Jesus didn't know what's going on. Uh Uh-oh, the Messiah got caught unawares. No, he takes charge. He's in charge. He did not fall asleep foolishly. He fell asleep sovereignly. Because he's the sleeping sovereign savior that's the think how you apply that let's look at the disciples question then and this really sets up the next chapter and a half so we'll deal with it quickly who then is this notice here then they are filled with a very different type of fear Jesus calms the storm and gives them something to really be afraid of doesn't he very different type of fear a display of raw, sovereign power that, that is unfathomable. Wind, as I understand it, is not a person. Doesn't have a will, and yet he rebukes the wind, and the wind obeyed. I just don't have categories for that, other than he's God, wow. The wind obeyed. The waves, which you'd think, well, they're helpless, they're just the, 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 they just have to do it the wind, nope, he rebukes the waves too, they obey too they're filled with a very different type of fear. And I think that oftentimes is the remedy in trials. We can look so, so intently at the size of the walled cities and so intently at the inhabitants of the land that we don't look equally intently at the sovereign God who above all should be feared. Jesus in, in Luke chapter 12 says this, verses four through five, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that, if nothing more they can do. But I warn you to fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. That's, that's what we need to fear. We need, the controlling fear of all other fears is the fear of the Lord, the taking of God seriously. And next we see they are growing in their understanding of who he is. Now, I think it's there's an irony here As we read, and we'll look at this next week, as we read through Luke, the disciples end this encounter, and the question isn't answered; it's left hanging. Right? In fact, both questions are unanswered. Jesus says, "Where's your faith?" No answer is given. They say, "Who then is this?" No answer given. I think Luke, very shrewdly, gives us an answer in the very next account. The question to which the disciples do not have an answer, the demoniac does. Look at verse twenty-eight. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? The disciples left speechless. Their categories for who Jesus is are are broken, growing, bigger, stretching them. They're left going, who is this? It's striking. The very next person with a declaration of who Jesus is is demonic. But we're headed ultimately to verse 20 of chapter 9. Peter answered, you are the Christ of God. And that's ultimately the challenge for us is is thinking through what we think we know about Jesus. What What you say you know about Jesus, what I say I know about Jesus, will that hold me fast in the storm? Will that hold me fast in the trial? Will that anchor and secure me? Or does that fly out the window like so much Christian hyperbole and slogans? Jesus in the parable of the sower talked of a soil that sprung up with joy, but then in times of trial and persecution falls away, there's a sense, there's a very real sense in which we really find out what we believe and we really find out our theology is in the whirlwind and in the storm. And so Luke has put this before us, that we might learn that lesson, that we might not make the same error of the disciples, that we might forget who Jesus is And of course, we've got to be patient with them because they don't have the full revelation yet. They're still learning. But we we have the whole story and we've read it over and over. And to whom much is given, much should be accountable. So let us stop and learn. Let us let us have the faith that they lacked. Let us put it together. In the storm, let's hold on to what we believe. And let's grow in our understanding of who the Lord is. I want to ask the worship team to come up for our final song, whatever, word of prayer. And I think it fits very, very well. The song speaks of, in the trial, in the calamity, holding fast to what we know about the Lord Jesus. Holding fast and that our heart and our minds would be still and calm even though the tempest rages around. Let's pray and then we will begin. Lord God, we just... Pray that by your word and by your spirit you would calm our hearts. Lord, I know that many of us are facing trials, sickness, disease, and other things. Things which truly do and should concern us and weigh on our hearts. But, oh Lord, put a fear and a confidence of you that becomes the ballast, the center, the foundation so that we will not be swayed. Work your peace in our hearts. Work within us a confidence and a reverence for you that cannot be shaken. Help us to see the living Christ as who he is. If our, if our categories for who he is need to be expanded and stretched, Lord, break them, smash them. Conform our thoughts to your word. In Jesus' name, amen.